today as we continue to examine the Gospel of John together. John chapter 17, excuse me, John chapter 19, verses 17 through 24. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to read along as I read aloud from God's Word. Let us hear the holy word of the Lord, John chapter 19, beginning with verse 17. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's taken from Psalm 22. So this is what the soldiers did. Let us pray. Dear Father, we come again to another part of the scene of the crucifixion of your son, Jesus Christ. It is a very serious and holy scene which we are examining. It is a terrible scene as well. We pray that as we look at this together, and as I seek to preach your word, that through your Holy Spirit you would have your way with our lives. You would transform us so that our lives grow into the example of Jesus Christ, whose life was sacrificed for us, whose blood was shed and body broken. Dear Father, I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, because it is your word that is holy and just and true, having power through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit to change human lives into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm afraid that from time to time you have occasion to suffer on Sunday morning through my experiences of the past week. Today will be no different. This past week, as a few of you know, uh, on a particular morning, Sandy came upstairs from a laundry run down to the basement and said, Nathan, I'm afraid that the water heater is gone. There's water running across the floor from the heater. This was the week for water woes, I think. Gus and Faye replaced a water line, and I got to replace the water heater. And so I went down there and uh, surveyed the damage, so to speak, and um, called up my man who knows everything, Jim Champion, and uh, through the help of various and sundry people, Jim and then Jerry Shibley, 
worked on getting a new water heater from Lowe's and putting it in. <clears throat> well, it's one of those things where if you have done it once, <clears throat> you forget by the time you've done it before. But if you've never done it before, then it takes a long time. And, and if you could just replace two at once, the second one goes oh so much faster. But I don't want to replace a second one just so I can do it faster. However, the interesting thing to note about replacing a water heater is that it is noteworthy if it is gas or electric. <clears throat> Why? Well, <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite jokes is the story of the fellow who's falling out of the plane. And he pulls on the first cord and nothing happens. And he pulls on the second cord and nothing happens. <clears throat> and all of a sudden he sees a man shooting up past him, going up. And he says, say, do you know anything about parachutes? And the other fellow says, no, do you know anything about gas heaters? <laughs> so when, when, you get, <laughs> when you get a gas heater, there is a sign that says in big red letters, if you have any questions, please call this number, 1-800-such-and-such. <clears throat> so I wasn't planning on having any questions, uh, but nonetheless, you couldn't miss that. Why? Because gas tends to blow up if you make a mistake. Well, on the other side <clears throat> of the red sign that says, if you have any questions, it says, such and such, so and so, pregunta in Spanish. Why? Because... They are putting things in different languages these days. And I was noticing as I was looking around in the section at Lowe's that every box had the instructions and the various and sundries on the side of it in three different language, languages. Of course, what I was looking for, because what I can read is English, but they had French and they had Spanish. <clears throat> they didn't have Cantonese, but they'll get there one of these days as well. <clears throat> Why? Because we are a world where many different languages are spoken. And the desire, if it is with regard to the installation of a gas heater, or with regard to instructions on any material, or purchase of any material, is so that everybody will understand it, right? They don't want to say, oh, you don't speak English. Well, you can't buy our product. Oh, you don't speak English. Well, maybe that's why your water heater blew up. They don't want that to happen, do they? I find it fascinating that as we come to this passage today, God, who oversees all things and who is directly concerned in all things and obviously directly concerned in the account which is before us today, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was to be accomplished for a specific purpose so that mankind would be able to have forgiveness of sins and peace with God, that God saw to it that the declaration concerning Christ was given in a multilingual way. Now, you may think to yourself, did he go through all that just to point out that the inscription above Christ was delivered in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek? All you have to do is say that. But there's more to it than that. <clears throat> it was not just a sign that was placed above Christ or placed somewhere on the cross so that people could read it. This was God's way of declaring 
what he had prophesied from the creation of the world, right at the fall in Eden, that he would send a Messiah to save mankind from the consequences of their sin, down to his prophecy through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when he said, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. All nations, not just Abraham, your descendants, the Israelites, but all nations. And as he prophesied throughout the Old Testament, it was declared on the inscription of Christ, this is not a message for one people. This is not a message just simply for the Hebrews. In which case, the declaration of Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, would only need to be declared in Aramaic, perhaps Greek, for commoners as well. But instead, this is a message that is to be declared throughout all nations to all people because it means salvation to all nations and all people. It's more important than the sign, if you don't pay attention, you may blow yourself up with a water heater. This is a message which has consequences throughout eternity. And a message which therefore must be declared with, trumpeted with the loudest horn. Declared to the people from the greatest to the least. Declared to people of all nations in every language. And in that day, in that place, with those three languages, you would hit them all. Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. And so we see in this passage an element that we have examined, particularly as we have looked at the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. That men were doing what they thought they were doing because they intended harm to Christ. And yet God was overseeing it all to see that what was done was for his purpose to suit his desire and his intent to fulfill his will. We see that explicitly pointed to in our passage. (coughs) Near the end of the passage, I read the quote from Psalm Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which was a prophecy about this point in time, a prophecy made many (coughs) centuries earlier, (coughs) in which it was said that the Messiah would have his clothing divided and not only divided between them, but also cast lots over them. And so astoundingly enough, here we have it happening. As Christ is on the cross, the soldiers below the cross are dividing his clothing. You get that, you get that, you get that. Wow, isn't this astounding? Look at this undergarment. It's seamless. I want, well, everyone wants it, of course. Well, we'll cast lots for it, throw dice or pick straws. And whoever gets it, gets it. Little think to themselves that what they are doing is a fulfillment of a prophecy. And it may seem a minor prophecy, but you understand where God is carrying out his plan. There is no such thing as a minor prophecy. And where the crucifixion of Christ is concerned, there is no such thing as a minor prophecy. Because this is the most powerful and magnificent event of all time. It is 
The crucifixion of God himself as Christ hangs there on the cross, is nailed to that cross and hangs there to die, fully God and fully man. Now we see in this passage here the fulfillment of many elements of Scripture. I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, which is a passage which speaks with great power regarding the crucifixion of Christ. And if you have a Bible, please turn with me. I'm going to read verses 3 through a portion of verse 10. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Now, it's speaking of it in the present tense, but it's a prophecy concerning Christ the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This plan, thought out and declared from before the beginning of time by the Lord himself, prophesied so that those who looked back could put the pieces of the puzzle together and say, this is the event that is spoken of. As we look at this passage, we see one element after another. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We saw that last week as he was before Pilate. And Pilate said, why do you not speak? Do you not know that I have the power to kill you or release you? As a sheep before her deer, his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And on our passage here, it says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Crucifixion seen here speaks very clearly to us of Christ being assigned a grave with the wicked. Not literally his resting place, because the next thing it speaks of in this passage is uh, with the rich in his death. That's specifically where he is buried, in Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man's tomb. But in his death, he was crucified with two wicked men. Both of these men sought to heap ridicule upon him. And then one of them said to the other, 
Do you not know that we are suffering as a result of our sins and yet this man is innocent? This man is innocent. <clears throat> and so he was indeed with the wicked, though he himself knew no sin. <clears throat> Why did this happen? Why was the sacrifice made? Last week we looked at injustice and the way in which we feel injustice cruelly and keenly. And yet we see, and oftentimes we seek to blame God for it or have questions about how he could tolerate it. And yet we see this injustice occurring to God himself. Why did he allow this injustice? It declares it through every verse of Isaiah 53. This is the message that is trumpeted throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Because he desires a godly seed, as is spoken in the words of scripture. Because he desires that by the sacrifice of the life of Christ, that the penalty for Adam's sin, which has brought death to all mankind, that that penalty might be paid. How can it be paid? It can be paid in two ways. It can be paid by us as we die. We leave this earth and not having trusted in Christ, we pay the penalty for our guilt and our sin, our rebellion against God, which is not forgiven through eternal condemnation. That is one way for the penalty to be paid. The only other way for it to be paid for each one of us as individuals is through what is happening here in this account. That a sinless one would die <clears throat> to take the penalty of those who would trust in him. And this is why Christ died. Because if he had not died on that cross, it says in chapter 53, <clears throat> he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. If he had not died on that cross, then the piercing, the crushing, <clears throat> the sentence that is due to our iniquities could be on no one else but ourselves. There is no hope for peace with God other than through the sacrifice of Christ. If Christ did not accomplish this, none would be at peace with God at any time. There might be many roads to heaven, but they are all dead ends except for trusting in Jesus Christ. And if Christ had not died, there would be no way to satisfy the anger of God, we would inherit having sown the wind, which is our sins. We would inherit the whirlwind, which is the anger and the wrath of God for eternity. So why this injustice? Why this sinless God-man hanging up there on that cross? Because there is no other way. None whatsoever. Now I turn back with you for a moment to what I began to preach about this morning, which is the element of the declaration to all people. There is such great beauty in this, in this passage. 
Now, if you were the Pharisees, and this happened as the, as the church began after Christ died and was raised from the dead, and people trusted in him, and the church started to grow in Judea, if you were a Jew who became a Christian, for instance, it might seem natural for you to carry over the Old Testament concept of salvation through the Jewish race. And you might think to yourself, this is our thing. It's not your thing. It's not your thing. It's our thing. It's for us who are Jewish people. I'm sorry, you don't belong here. And yet every declaration that we see occurring, and John writes these things down in the account of the crucifixion of Christ, is presenting that glorious news that it is no longer to be the Jews' prerogative, the Jews' joy, the Jews' blessing only. Instead, it is to be a joy and a blessing, a salvation that is to be spread to the four corners of the globe. How is that declared to us? It's declared in many ways. It's declared through the language. The language which... Certainly the people in Jerusalem, because of the Passover, they all could have read one or the other or been standing next to someone who could read one or the other. This man is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Pharisees hated that, and they said to Pilate, Pilate, why don't you say this man said he was the king of the Jews? And it's ironic as we examine this. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Now, there may be law on his side, and he may be have been carrying out the Roman law in this uh, conquered territory, which was what he had written, he had written. As in, the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be uh, removed or contradicted. And yet it's fascinating to look at this, because he stands on, on a minor point <clears throat> of law or of personal principle. He's willing to let a man whom he has declared as innocent be crucified. And yet when it comes to changing the title of his pen, he says, I'm not going to change that. I've, in essence, one can hear him say, I've gone far enough. I've done what you asked, and now I'm not going to change that. No more changes for you. I've done what you wanted. Astounding. But a man who had gone to the length that he would crucify an innocent man would stand on the principle of king of the Jews rather than he said he would be king of the Jews. Why? Well, there may be, as I have mentioned, many reasons. The clear reason behind all of it is that God intended it to be declared to the population who were present in Jerusalem, Jesus is the king of the Jews. No, he said, she said, they said, we said about it. But instead, by God's hand dictating through Pilate, it was declared to the world that passed by. This man is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the king of the Jews. As we consider this declaration concerning Christ, we realize that we are confronted with the same thing ourselves. How so? And what? Scripture declares to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. 
And so we can respond to that as the Pharisees did. And as many people throughout our culture and throughout the world around us do today. Well, he says he was God. He says he was the Messiah. They say these things about him. They say he performed these miracles. But let's just say he's a good teacher. We think certain things about him are true, but the others obviously are not. And yet who has the ultimate say? Pilate had, in one sense, the ultimate say. The question is not even what did Pilate think, because as we've already seen, Pilate crucified him, an innocent man. Pilate declared him innocent and crucified him. The question is, what does the ultimate authority say? No matter how much relativism there is in our culture today, we all know that there is absolute truth. We live by it. Go out under my apple tree. Shake the tree. Are you going to put your hands under your knees so the apples don't hit them? Or put your hands over your head? Absolute truth. It will happen. Walk under my apple tree. Step in the rotten apples. Squish around. They've all fallen off the tree. Why didn't they fall into the sky? It would be so much more convenient. (laughs) Maybe then they'd land in your yard and you'd get to clean them up. Absolute truth. Who is in charge of absolute truth? Who knows whether these things that are told to us in Scripture are true? It is God who has written the words of Scripture. And by his grace, he has not only provided the way out, which is... Through salvation, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in him, repenting of our sins. But he has also declared it in such a way so that we don't have to guess what is right. We don't have to read through the Library of Congress, the Alexandrian Library of millennia ago. Instead, we have it before us in the word of God, presented, packed together ordered in such a way that we can read it and find of God's work and plan through history, the way that he has laid it out, the way that he has carried it out, and what that is to mean to you and to me. He has set it up in such a simple way so that when that time comes for the judgment, that it will simply be, it won't be a question, well, I couldn't find this here or that there or the other. It will simply be, you have seen it. Did you believe it? And so I was realizing as I was praying this morning, praying as I always pray before I preach, that my words would be faithful and in keeping with God's word, which alone is holy and just and true, Because it is God's word alone, which through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit is able to change human hearts to be in keeping with God's plan. I was realizing that I was neglecting one element of God's will, which is that oftentimes his word is used by him to harden human hearts. And this is a case for the deadliest fright. Consider the example of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. 
Pharaoh was told by Moses, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who's going to make me? And so God made him. Again and again and again through the ten plagues. This plague was not bad enough. The next plague was worse. The next plague was worse. And during the plagues, Pharaoh said, all right, all right, I give in, I give in. We'll let you go. And every time he's changed his mind, what it tells us in Scripture is that despite the fact that Pharaoh was confronted with the word of God through Moses, through the man who is revered today throughout most religions, even we'll give them that credit, that he ignored the word of God and did not believe it. And we are told in Scripture that God hardened his heart. And so as we approach this passage of Scripture, and as we approach the crucifixion of Christ, the great and terrible danger for us is that our hearts would be hardened into saying, as the Pharisees said, well, he said he was the Messiah. But, well, you know, let's just state he said it. This is what he said. And then you can make up your own mind as to whether or not it's true. Well, yes, we are making up our minds. But God help us when the judgment comes. If we have continued down the path of the Pharisees, which is to say, he said, instead of, I believe and I live accordingly. Now, the Pharisees are not the only ones who are involved in this account here. There are many others. There are the soldiers who are busy feathering their pockets. It was a prerogative of the soldiers, a privilege. Those who they crucified, they could take their possessions. And that's what they were busy doing. Taking whatever possessions remained after the garrison had gotten through, stripping him and beating him, flogging him and then sending him out, carrying his cross to die. And so we see in our day as well that commerce, business, pursuing the events and the activities of our lives can so easily blind us to what is going on around us. Not just the Pharisees who said, he said this, and you can decide for yourself whether or not it's true. Of course, we don't believe it's true. The soldiers who are going about their daily affairs, ignoring the Son of God crucified right above them. And then we see the people. Uh, This message in my gas water heater, it's not in tiny print. It is big letters. They want you to see it. God did the same thing with Christ. He placed him on a hill where the people traveling throughout Jerusalem, as as John so aptly points out, it was on a placard. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in these three languages, because people who were traveling throughout Jerusalem would see it. Not only crucified, but crucified in a place so that it would be a public sign to the many thousands of people of Jerusalem what was happening and who was dying there that day. These people had the opportunity to read this. There were rich people. There were poor people. 
There were business people. There were religious leaders. There were soldiers. There were people who could understand Aramaic, those who could only understand Greek, those who could only read Latin. Because God desired to state to the world on that day, this is happening and it changes things forever. So as we look at this account, we realize that the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone is the message that is to be declared to all people. Are we people who live that out in such a way that it is declared to all people? Are we people who keep this message to ourselves, not understanding God placed Jesus on a hill for a sign, a billboard for all to see? Are we people who understand that this message is not a message for them out there or for me right here, but it is a message for everyone, and it is a message for me, because God has declared it to all people. Let us consider this sacrifice. Let us consider the way in which God sought to declare it. Let us respond to him out of love for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that we might find salvation and peace with him for eternity. Trust that it is indeed so, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews, who was prophesied would come and bring salvation to all nations. Trust that it means you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for your will in this and for the sacrifice that you made, that your Son made, that the Holy Spirit made for this separation to occur so that our sins might be taken on the back of Christ who suffered and died for us that we might have salvation. We pray for each one of us that you would apply this truth to our hearts and to our lives, that we would trust in Christ as our Savior. And having seen this message and read this declaration in Scripture, that we would understand that it is pointed directly at us and that we must respond, and that we must respond through faith because there is truth. And you are the one who declares truth. And you declare it in such a way so that we might understand it and turn to you with gratitude, which is eternal for the offer of salvation and the reality of salvation from the consequences due to our sins. Please forgive us for our sins. Please save us through Jesus Christ as we pray in his name. Amen.